in the Civil Rights Act of 1968, America does move forward. And the bell of freedom rings out a little louder. Hi there, this is A Little Louder, a podcast for wonks, housers, and rabble-rousers, where we talk about fair housing, community development, and how we can use these issues to build people power and work toward equity and justice. And you did that by memory this time, Christina. I'm Christina Rosales. I'm John Henneberger. This is episode 24. What's episode 24 about, John? It's about an organization which really shakes it up and is a total inspiration. Adaptive Texas, who has for decades fought and won very important rights of people with disabilities in not just the housing area, but public transportation and accessibility. That's right. So we're talking to Stephanie Thomas, who has worked with ADAPT since the 1980s. And for 40 years, she has been a disability rights grassroots activist. So we bring you our conversation with Stephanie Thomas. Stephanie, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them what you've been doing. As you say, I've been a grassroots disability rights organizer and advocate for uh, quite a long time, really since the mid-70s. I had an accident right before college and uh, wound up in a wheelchair. And when I went to college, there wasn't really accessibility there. And so some of the students and I organized. And then and then from there, it went on and I got started working in the independent living movement, uh, which is like a self-help movement for people with disabilities. And then from there, I became involved with the state disability coalition here in Texas called the Coalition for Texans with Disabilities. And I um, became the director with a woman named Jean Langendorf. And and then after that, moved on to ADAPT, uh, and that was in the 80s, and I've been working with ADAPT ever since. Adaptive Texas, uh, there was clearly a need for it in the state. So tell me the story of, of how it came to be. Back in the day, ADAPT was really focused on transportation. Um, and I was working out in El Paso at this independent living center out there. And I got a brochure in the mail that said, are you sick of questionnaires and uh, surveys? Well, this is the last one you'll ever need to fill out. And there was a picture of a bus sticking out of a toilet. And it also said, don't flush, organize. And I looked at it and I said, this is pretty different. And it was also handwritten. And I just thought, this is really great. And so I I shared it with a couple of friends of mine, uh, Bob Kafka and Jim Parker. It was an invitation to a training on being an activist. So they went to that training and I wasn't able to go because of my job, but they came back and were just totally taken by it and and felt like this was the new thing. And and so the the three of us eventually started Adaptive Texas. And the main issue that we were working on at the time was trying to get public transportation accessible because at that time there really wasn't anything. I mean, there were some door-to-door transit services available 
available, but they were severely restricted on the times that they were available, much shorter than when buses were available. And the purposes of your trip were restrictions on your riding, like you could go to work, but you couldn't go to the grocery store because they just didn't have enough service because these things were severely underfunded. It was a total joke and it was totally unequal. And none of the buses were accessible. So uh, ADAPT was working very hard to make buses accessible so that people would be able to get around their communities. And that's what we started on here in Texas. I had moved to Austin by then. Uh, We were able to get Austin's system to be the first in the state and one of the first in the country to commit to buying buses with lifts because it was only for new buses that we were asking. And um, slowly but surely, we were able to go around the country and uh, get system after system to change so that uh, when the Americans with Disabilities Act was introduced, uh, it had lifts on buses in it. But by the time it passed, already over 50 percent of the systems in, in the country were accessible. And on top of that, while the other parts of the law had like a two-year phase-in period, there was a one-month phase-in for the bus systems. So we made that issue rise up to the top of the disability rights agenda, and it really revolutionized transportation for people with disabilities. So it had to do, for you in the early years, with the questions of accessibility and basic civil rights, when did the concept of the unequalness of, of housing, and I know that the, the whole movement to end the institutionalization of people with disabilities was, was really one of the early galvanizing struggles in the movement. When did housing come into your uh, role as an advocate? What happened was that After the ADA passed, the Americans with Disabilities Act, as a national organization, ADAPT got together and said, you know, what what do you want to do now? Because we weren't foolish enough to think the transit thing was, you know, it it was going to have to still be worked on, but it was very much one. And so uh, what happened was that a lot of the members of ADAPT at that time were people who had been institutionalized and then had, through blood, sweat and tears and luck, gotten out of institutions and were then living in the community. And uh, and everybody felt that getting folks out of these institutions, that was really a critical thing. We couldn't just leave people behind because you could have all these rights. But if you're in a place where somebody else is running your life, you don't really have access to a lot of these things. A lot of our listeners aren't going to understand the real disastrous consequences to people's lives about being involuntarily institutionalized. How do people end up getting institutionalized, and what are the consequences? What I've learned from my friends who have been in these places, and we count nursing homes among them, state institutions for people with disabilities, and sometimes even uh, mental hospitals, what happens is is you really lose control of your life because when you're in an institutional setting, the institution is run for the sake of the institution and at the convenience of the staff and people that, you know, run it. So 
you just have to fit in and you don't get to choose what you eat. You don't get to choose the clothes you wear. You don't get to choose really much of anything. And you don't get out into the community and meet other people and do things out in the community. You're just kind of stuck in there and without any rights. And often there's quite a bit of abuse going on. Yeah. And a lot of people have probably heard about the Supreme Court Olmstead case. I guess that was a ray of hope for the advocacy community and people who were institutionalized. How has that played out? And is it still playing out? Um, it, you know, that's a really... Uh, interesting point that actually grew out of a lot of the work of adapt the Olmstead case even though it happened in in uh, Georgia in Atl- in Atlanta with some other people with uh, Lois Curtis and Elaine Wilson were the plaintiffs but what happened is that we began to think in adapt you know why can't the idea that you know separate is not equal and that people have the right to enjoy all these things that the ADA has reconfirmed why can't that apply to the issue of getting services in the community? Because for a lot of people with physical disabilities and also for people with some cognitive kinds of disabilities, they need services and supports to be able to live wherever they live. I mean, you know, they're not going to be physically able to dress themselves or feed themselves. They may need help with money management or decision-making, that kind of thing. So there were these supports and services that were needed, but the only place you could get them was in an institution. What happened was that ADAPT said, there's this money here to pay for these institutional services, which are much more expensive than community services. Why can't people use that money instead to get services in the community? And so we started talking about it in a attorney named Steve Gold filed a lawsuit in Pennsylvania called the Idell S case. And that led to attorneys around the country thinking that it would be a good idea to file similar cases as well. And that led to Lois and Elaine and their attorney, uh, Ms. Jameson, uh, in Georgia filing a case saying, you know, that they they had been waiting on lists for community services for decades. That case made its way up through the courts to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court basically said that unnecessarily institutionalization is discrimination. And so it was a very fundamental case for the disability rights community, and it's been used again and again to to push for more and more community services. However, there still is this problem that in the service arena, nursing homes are mandated. Some of the other kinds of uh, institutions for people with disabilities are not exactly mandated, but they are so entrenched in the mentality of service delivery that they are de facto mandated. And by mandated, you mean that that Medicaid provides that states have to fund those they don't have to fund the community services it's a it's a requirement of medicaid uh if you're in a state like texas where they're relatively cheap they are definitely going to fund the stuff they have to fund but they're only going to spend so much on the on the rest of it and so the the institutions have an upper edge on on the limited funding that's available for services all of that to say, you know, that's where ADAPT's, you know, mission statement or, or, or motto comes from, free our people. 
Exactly, exactly. Because what happened was when we met and we were wondering what to do after the Americans with Disabilities Act, with so many people that had been through this very problem of trying to get out of these institutions, everybody felt that it was pretty much the next thing we needed to work on was getting more community-based services so that people could move out into the community and not be stuck in the institution. And then Olmsted helped that whole effort because it gave people the stated right to have services in the community. forward from there, I think it seems like that's the root of ADAPT and and the disability rights communities movement toward making community more accessible and in turn making housing and living arrangements more accessible for for independence. Exactly. So tell us about some of your work to make housing more accessible in Austin. What are some of the levers you use to achieve that, that justice? A very important thing that happened here was that we had a VISTA project to help people get out and live in the community, but we were having a very hard time finding housing for the people that we were able to, you know, identify who wanted to move out. And so we are actually having a better time getting services for people, but but the housing was just a complete barrier and people were actually waiting for people to die so that accessible units would come open. And that just seemed crazy to me. I mean, it was like, there's something wrong with this picture. And so I fought very hard to get a list. I thought if I get a list of these subsidized places, because, you know, people coming out of institutions and other people with disabilities, many of them live on disability benefits, which are quite limited. So here in Austin, they're probably uh, 12% or below of the median family income. So, you know, you can't just go to any old apartment. And so what I wanted to do was to get a list of the places to move people out to. And the city did not want to give those up to me. It took a big fight. And actually, my hero and deep throat, Karen Pop, is the one who actually was able to get at least a partial list to me of places Uh, because she served on a committee for the city uh, related to housing. She gave me a list that she was able to obtain of the places around town that were accessible. And then I just drove by them. And I didn't even have to go inside to see that over 60% of the places that I was looking at were not accessible. And this is something that can be done anywhere. And I think it needs to be done in more cities across the country. And it's quite a simple thing once you get the list. I went and I said, this this has to be a, a failure of enforcement by the city because there's not that many people that are just trying to defraud uh, this thing. I filed the complaint with HUD against uh, the city for failure to enforce. And first it took a while to get people to you know pay attention, but we did a few protests at HUD offices and things to get them to to actually look into it. But once they did look into it, they totally agreed and said that the city was completely in violation. And um, we got a voluntary compliance agreement between the city and ADAPT and HUD that the city would take a number of steps to 
remedy this failure on their part. And they they had a trainings for their staff, which ADAPT was contracted to provide the trainings on what the accessibility requirements involved in terms of program access and physical accessibility. And then um, they had to pay for some information packets to be made for the people around, you know, the consumers and people with disabilities in town who wanted to know what their rights were. And they had to go and review all of the housing that was still under uh, applicable contracts to see if it was accessible. And a gentleman named Bob Buck went and reviewed complexes all around the city, and he found problems at every single one. He is an architect, and he was an expert in accessibility. So he reviewed all – I don't know how many, but he, he, there were, he had these books, and they filled shelves of reports on each of the – complexes. Um, Unfortunately, some had been sold and the contract didn't apply to the new owner. There was some really kind of sad stuff that happened in that regard, but we were able to get many, many complexes to come into compliance. And also the city kind of sat up and took notice and really started to become a champion of accessibility for a while. And they they worked very hard at it. And, and another thing that came out of it was that there's this thing called visitability, which is about basic accessibility for ha- housing that isn't covered by Section 504 or the Fair Housing Act, basically for duplexes, triplexes, and single-family housing. What we were able to do was to get a visitability ordinance passed here in Austin that that kind of housing that was built with federal funding would need to have basic accessibility, not even as involved as fair housing, but just that you would be able to get in the front door, have a path of travel through the house, be able to reach the light switches and electrical outlets. And there would be a bathroom that would be, if there was a bathroom on the ground floor, it'd be usable by someone in a wheelchair. And that that was passed, and uh, eventually we were able to get expanded a little bit more here in Austin, but uh, that took years and years and years. Everybody said it would be horrible and impossible to do, and it was just the worst idea ever. And then it was uh, people were saying, oh, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it, which is what we've been saying all along. You know, on, on all the things that I've advocated on, basically, that's what the story has been. You know, oh, this is terrible. This will ruin everything. It's too expensive. It's ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. And by the end, people are like, oh, this is not more expensive. This is actually cheaper and blah, blah. So, you know, you just get a lot of fighting back. But my point is that it was very simple to do that complaint and to get things going and to maybe a better route in this day and age might be a lawsuit. But instead of going after each individual housing complex, look at the big picture and see if there really is enforcement by the funders to see if they really are making things the way that they're supposed to be made. And if not, then go after them because you'll have a much bigger bang for your buck and it, and it really wasn't hard to do. Yeah, I think that's important to know that, you know, you and and a small group of advocates were able to accomplish a, a systemic change that that had sort of universal benefits for the community because like you were saying, there's this big fight for accessibility and and people think, "Oh, it's expensive and it, it it's, you know, it's for a small group." But 
you think about how that benefits the rest of the community, for example, like the curb cuts on the sidewalks and wider sidewalks, sure, that's meant for, you know, people in wheelchairs and people who have a hard time getting around, but they have a greater benefit to, you know, moms with strollers, moms walking with kids, even when you have a luggage rolling along, those those sidewalk curb cuts are helpful to everybody. And it's not that big of an investment considering the benefit to everyone. So true. You look at a corner and where is everyone standing? They're standing in the curb cuts. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's that's exactly right. I'm envious of your advocacy approach because ADAPT uses the tactics of the early civil rights movement with set-ins and direct confrontation, whereas I think the rest of the community that works on fair housing and civil rights and the like has moved entirely into the courts, which are now, of course, less and less protecting the intent of those statutes. Why do you use direct action, and can you give us some examples of where it's been effective? Well, ADAPT We started not long after the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement and a lot of those kind of what people think of as the 60s protesting movements. And um, we felt that they had worked, these tactics had worked very well for them. And also people with disabilities are very often discounted and not thought of as able to do anything or, you know, have any constructive thoughts or be able to contribute. And so um, there's such such a negative attitude about disability generally and that, you know, we're helpless. Um, And so we needed to combat that attitude on top of confronting the system in in a direct action way. And we found the tactic to be quite effective. I mean, the idea is you just take on something at least the way that Adaptive Texas thinks of it, you take on something and you try to speak to the core of what is wrong with the situation and to demonstrate the problem. And we we usually do it with some sort of demonstration. The other side of it is that it allows people who have been kind of put down and thought of as nothing, and that has an effect on how you think about yourself. It allows those folks to be part of the solution and to help create it because they are part of the action. And that's what we call demonstrations. So these actions are letting the people who are directly affected speak to the people who can make the change. That's what we really believe in. And if people are really interested in knowing more about that, I wrote a little organizing manual for ADAPT groups or other groups like that. Uh, And it's online on the site, www.disabilityorganizing101andbeyond. And I think that it's very important um, in housing advocacy for more groups to involve the people who are actually needing the housing and using the housing and to confront the powers that be, the decision makers, with the problem because everyone's going to ignore it until that happens. And I think that going the route of the professional, it's okay and it has its place, but it's not demonstrating the need, I don't believe. It's it's leaving out the people who who need the housing, it's keeping them as passive players in the whole game, and it's not 
showing the urgency of the matter. And it is an extremely urgent matter. And I mean, I speak especially of affordability. You know, this isn't maybe true everywhere, but but in many, many places in the country, affordability is becoming a huge crisis. And instead of doing good things about it, the federal government is cutting or keeping a leash on all the funding for housing. Public housing is struggling to keep going. It's just, it's a horrible situation. And this is going on for more and more people in our country. It's not just people with disabilities, but people with disabilities are especially caught in this because their benefits are quite low and they really don't have other alternatives. ADAPT has something called the pitchfork approach to advocacy. And there's more about this on in that organizing manual that I was talking about. But um, basically what it is, is that you use multiple strategies at the same time to push. We do direct action and we believe very strongly in it. And we've been arrested many, many, many times for the campaigns that we have fought on. Um, but at the same time, we also try to push the issue in the media. We try to do uh, to work on uh, the legislative eff efforts, like with the budget and stuff like that. We try to work with um, also uh, the bureaucracy and to try to get them to change. And so we, we're trying many approaches at the same time. Um, sometimes we combine them. Like, well, we would go to hearings for uh, – this is more on um, attendance services than on housing, but we would go to hearings to try to get more community-based services funding, and we would do things like um, one time we uh, we uh, took a bunch of pennies and because we we figured out that if you take a couple of pennies away from the nursing home industry's rates, you would be able to fund millions of dollars of community services. Um, and so we went and took pennies. And as people testified, they would go and throw pennies up at the people on the, on the, the when the, when the, when they had boards for the agencies, they threw pennies up at those people. Um, and another time they put a freeze on the uh, services. And so we took little uh, toy people, little plastic you know, like uh, army people and cowboys and Indians, those little ones. And we, I cut off all the guns, but anyway, we put them in ice trays and we froze them. And then when people testified, we went and threw the frozen people up, up at the people on, uh, on the board. And we said, you know, end the freeze. And, and while people were testifying, these little ice cubes were dripping, 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 dripping. The thing is, is if you take the approach of, you know, business as usual and you play by the rules of the power makers, they they set those rules up so that you don't have any power and they have the power. And that's the whole point of the rules. So you want to overturn that and go the other direction and say, look, uh, we're not going to play by the those by your rules because your rules are set up to just keep us down. And so you do things in a non-business-as-usual kind of way. It forces them onto a more level playing field, and it makes them deal with you in a more direct kind of way, and that is more likely to get you a result. So those are some of the reasons why we do what we do and, and how we do what we do. And you do it, you do it with, not only with 
great effectiveness, with, but with great style and uh, great long-term commitment. Well, I'm getting a bit uh, tired and worn out, and I, I have new jobs now being an attendant myself. So uh, I, I really look for some new people to come along and, and uh, younger people to come along and take up the, uh, the mantle and keep it going because it's far from over. There's so many injustices still happening. Okay, Christina, are you inspired? I want to go set in or uh, freeze little army figures in ice cubes and throw them at elected officials. How do you feel? I'm not going to let you do that, but we can talk about other things we can throw during protests. Yay! (laughs) That's our show, everybody. Uh, You can find us at texashousers.org. I'm Christina Rosales. And I'm John Direct Action Henneberger. Our music is by J.T. Herrenschmack. And we'll see you next time. I don't